Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Matt Hagens. He's the executive chef, owner, founder of Preston's, a burger joint, which you can currently find in the North Market downtown. They're getting ready to open another location for Honey's Fried Chicken that's going to be in Groveport sometime 2022. We get into all that. It's currently kind of delayed due to some construction stuff, which pretty much any new restaurant that's in the works is delayed by construction, whether it's lack of materials or permitting or anything like that. So not unusual. But we talk about that kind of towards the end of the podcast. But I think Matt is somebody who a lot of people know of within the Columbus community. You know, he's definitely well connected with all the different chefs and restaurateurs and all that stuff. I don't know how many people know his kind of full story and how he got into cooking and why. And so we go through all of it. We go all the way back to his very first job at a Chuck E. Cheese, you know, Ruby Tuesdays and and on there too as well. So, I mean, he, you know, worked in D.C. for a bit. He has family in North Carolina, eventually, you know, came back to Columbus too as well. Uh, with a food truck in hand and started Swoop Food Group, which was a food truck that he had. So we get into all that stuff too, kind of different places that he worked. Matt's a really interesting guy. You know, he went to OSU for journalism, recently fired back up his food blog, Addition the Life. Uh, so you can find that at additionthelife.com. That had been on a hiatus for like about three years, I think. But one thing we didn't talk about is his upcoming guest chef stint at Chapman's. Uh, they're having a dinner uh, that'll actually be next Tuesday. Uh, we are going to that. I'll have photos for it, uh, but that wasn't announced at the time when we were recording this, so no details on how like the menu was constructed, his different ideas and stuff like that, and, and how he put together everything. So maybe we'll have to have him back on to kind of discuss that and everything once uh, once it happens. But make sure to follow him on Instagram, at kitchen underscore Matt, also at Preston's Burgers, at Honey's Fried Chicken, and at service underscore relief underscore kitchen. Him and a few others, which we get into during the podcast, founded Service Relief Kitchen uh, for hospitality workers during the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns and everything like that. So we kind of discussed the founding and the goal and how it's going and how it's been going and everything too with that. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Chef Matt Hagens, owner, founder, chef of Preston's, a burger joint here in Columbus, Ohio. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Uh, taking some time out of out of your day there. You know, my first interaction, you know, with Preston's was when you guys had the food truck, but you've done a lot of stuff before Preston's and I was kind of doing some research and everything. And it's not a whole lot before kind of once you pop up at the Rossi is kind of really, I think when, at least from a journalistic setting, you know, there's different articles and stuff like that, that kind of pop up about you. But before that, there's not too, too much. How did you like first get started? Cause you're from Columbus, right? But you lived in North Carolina for a while. I think you also lived in Virginia and maybe even West Virginia at one point too? Actually, I was born in Cleveland a long time ago, and my parents had a baby and decided it was a good time to get the hell out of Cleveland. Um, so we moved to West Virginia, um, and I was there for, uh, I think, eight years, uh, like probably the first eight years of my life before we then moved to North Carolina and then moved here because my mom did not like it in the woods. Went to school on the east side of Columbus, uh, uh, graduated from Independence, was at the J School at Ohio State for about 45 seconds. Uh, I worked for AT&T for a pretty big chunk of time. I think about eight years. I uh, did not like it um, ever. And there was uh, another round of layoff uh, for like the second or third round since the time I'd worked there. And I opted for an early retirement. So I retired from AT&T at like 30. Went out to Santa Barbara for, you know, half a second. Checked out Chicago. Spun through New York. Just kind of curious. And I landed in D.C. I was in D.C. for probably 
for the DMV. So I lived in Virginia the time I was there, but I worked in DC, I uh, worked in Virginia. Uh, and then I drove a food truck back here, which uh, was the Swoop food truck way back in the day. It was, uh, it was very difficult. We're doing fine dining, small plates uh, from a food truck and sliders, uh, which is a weird mix of things. But I found out that people did not want to buy fine dining, small plates from a food truck. So we had to figure something else out to do. After that, I was at the Flatiron with Steve, who was a great guy. If you ever have to have a ball, having a guy like Steve is is, is the way to go. Um, and then after that, I was at the Rossi, uh, and that's where one of the first things you can find. So I think that gets us real close to caught up. Well, going back to dive in a little bit to the history before then, your first job was at a Ruby's Tuesdays dishwashing, right? Holy shit. <laughs> Actually, no. Uh, my first job was only moderately more embarrassing than that. I worked at Chuck E. Cheese. That was my first job. I was 14 years old. I'm 15 years old. Um, I was uh, game room, Matt. I fixed the games and was Chuck E. Cheese for most of my shifts uh, on the east side of Columbus uh, over uh, by Eastland Mall. And uh, yeah, that was my first job. So your first job in a restaurant, unless you consider Chuck E. Cheese a restaurant. I do, man. I would eat pizza from Pasquale's right now, honestly. I probably wouldn't enjoy it, but I would eat it. I think, you know, bad pizza is still good pizza. I forget the name of it. There was this Chinese restaurant that opened on the east side that I just love the food at so much. And I applied to get a job there. And the manager was just like, oh, okay, like you want to cook here. And I did. I didn't know anything about how to do it, but I was interested in the food and I wanted to cook there. And he was just like, well, what's your favorite dish? And I was like, I'm from America. So it was General So's. And he's like, what do you think is in it? And I was just like, chicken and brown sugar. I don't know. He was like, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to hire you. So I ended up at Ruby Tuesday. Um, I opened the Ruby Tuesday at, out on Bryce Road. Uh, that's not there anymore. I don't think it's there. Um, and I was a buffer at Ruby Tuesday and a salad bar attendant. So I like a nice crisp salad bar. Going through, obviously, kind of odds and ends jobs through high school, basically, right? So when did it kind of evolve to knowing that's what you wanted to do? I mean, obviously, throughout kind of your history, you're kind of going back and forth between food and, and working in the telecom industry. And eventually it goes in the food. But coming up, like, did you always have in the back of your mind, like growing up, I want to do something with food? Or like, was food a big part of your childhood? It was a huge part of my childhood, you know, um, you know, everybody's, everyone's mom is the best cook in the world. And my mom was no exception. She came by those talents though. Like she, she, they weren't naturally developed. She worked hard to be a good cook for us. You know, she worked, she learned about things that we liked and learned how to make new things and like worked on like recipes, um, try to make things better. And I always paid attention to that. There was a lot of curiosity in the kitchen at home, uh, a lot of drive to do better. Um, and then in North Carolina, we were, we lived like on a plot of land that was surrounded by all of my aunties uh, and, and uncles and family. And food was a really, really big part of the environment there. The way that we eat. I mean, actually, you know, my family uh, at that time was uh, big into agriculture. We grew um, sweet potatoes, corn, watermelon. Uh, my Uncle John had like a legit, like a legit fucking farm, like a, like, like, cows and pigs and uh, you know like barns and we had to get up and go slop the hogs in the morning it was like a legit thing there was always an undertone of competition and you know whose macaroni and cheese was the best and whose you know pound cake you were going to eat and, and it was at a very formative time i mean mostly because i was like 
in my I was in my teen years, the beginning of them, and I was really hungry all the time. So I was consistently shoving things in my mouth. But it was a good environment to be in to kind of set do some level setting about you know how I feel about food. Kind of 2002, you wind up working at Elemental Fine Dining, which I think is DC area, right? Elemental was here in Columbus. It actually used to be the old Black Creek Bistro, which is a diner now, I think. Uh, it's on Parsons, uh, Parsons and uh, Broad Street. Yeah, so back in the day, under Sue Buck uh, was a the chef there when I was there. I worked, I worked at Elemental. I got my first sugar burn. I worked my first like service that didn't involve, you know, pre-made pizza dough. Uh, it was cool. I learned a lot there. You know, another uh, catalyst to me kind of getting in the industry was I read a ton of books um, and I've always consumed a lot of media. So I, I'm a big fan of Emeril Lagasse, like a huge fan of Emeril Lagasse. I used to watch that show religiously. I mean, more religiously than cartoons for a while. Um, uh, Emerald Live, uh, I think it was A Taste of Emerald. Uh, and then, you know, the Bourdain books, I devoured them and read them over and over again. And, you know, I think when I was offered that buyout at AT&T, I knew what I was going to do. I, I think I was just trying to figure out where I was going to do it at. You're kind of bouncing between the telecom industry and, and working in kitchens and stuff. And then, like you said, you, you get kind of laid off. 2009 is kind of roughly when you really start your kind of professional culinary career, you wind up working at, is it Inox restaurant? Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I kind of was waylaid from that because my dad told me I needed to get a real job, which he's probably still right. But when I got that opportunity, when that buyout came along and I retired, you know, like I said, I, I knew what I was going to do. I just had to figure out where I was going to do it. Um, I ended up in DC because DC felt like, or the D, the DMV, the, the DC area, it felt like a good mix between Columbus uh, or, or like a middle, a midway point between uh, Columbus and New York. New York felt like it was too much. I felt like I could probably have lived and survived there for six or seven months um, before the pace of life there just was too much for me. I don't, I don't actually like people that much. <laughs> Being in big crowds, meeting a bunch of new people, it's not like, it's not really for me. So I just felt like New York was going to be a little bit too fast paced for me. And D.C. felt like a place where I could settle in. And actually, it ended up being, you know, the first place that I really felt at home, kind of like all on my own. Uh, it was the first time I was part of a team that was responsible for doing something. I mean, it was an awful place. I mean, the food was the food was good. It was a really, a really bad working environment. And I mean, I had come from, you know, a pretty corporate uh, background. So, you know, I was like in the kitchen and someone was like, fuck you. And I was like, why well, don't think I could say that to you? That's inappropriate. And there's probably an HR department here, but don't talk to me like that. No HR department there. There was definitely no HR department. No one was looking out for us at all. But I met some lifelong friends there. We have stories to tell about it. Um, and I worked with a group of people that thought about food and pushed each other in a way that I'd never seen before. There was a real attention to detail. You know, we, we discussed dishes and techniques, e even the surrounding area, you know, like even cooks in that city or in that metro area, you know, there's all these little places where people meet up, talk about, you know, how service went and like, you know, what was difficult and what we're working on. And here's this idea I've, I've been trying to figure out, well, if you try this or you add a little bit of this, you might be able to make it work. It was a really collaborative time for me. And like I said, it was a real good, you know, like head start into, into the industry. Then like a year later, you wind up doing some bartending, right? Yeah. It was kind of like at the same time. I yeah, I didn't, I didn't make any money because, because I, because I lived in Virginia and was commuting back and forth to DC and I made $10 an hour. Um, and that is not sustainable at all. I was bartending at a place called uh, Bravo, uh, B-R-A-B-O in Old Town, Alexandria, 
and then also at Garrett's Railroad Tavern uh, in Georgetown, uh, which is like a real old school dive bar. It was a really, really fun place to be. What was the biggest difference between bartending like in a dive bar versus, you know, the other place, Bravo, that was in like a hotel? I think probably just like the expectations of customer service. I mean, also the expectations of the drinks that you were getting. I don't think anyone actually, like we had these guys that would come in and they would have like four or five martinis and they, you know, you know, Greg use martinis and they get too drunk on martinis and switch to like Hess Chardonnay, which is, I mean, I hope they don't sue me. It's awful. It's really bad. Uh, I don't think people were really, really caught up in that. Uh, the speed of service was different. The intricacy, you know, like of the work, you know, they had a composed cocktail program. Uh, at Bravo uh, that we all came together and worked on. There's a lot of wine education. Uh, I worked for um, the GM at the time, or the the GM transitioned to a guy named David Perka there, who I learned a ton from. We're still really good friends to this day. Did you ever have a instance where like you thought like in your mind you were going to, you know, the hotel bar, but you're actually working your shift at like the dive bar and then like somebody ordered something and you're like, wait, this is too fit. Like, no, no, no. I just wanted like this basic thing. And like you were trying to do all this extra and you're like, oh, I'm in the wrong place always trying to do too much at Garrett's, like always. There wasn't, you know, the, the ladies that owned it were super nice ladies. They had, you know, perks from someone else that was like also a regular at the bar. And, you know, they knew they were old time industry pros. They knew what they were doing. So when I was in DC, there was a huge shift in, in the food culture there. Uh, Eric Repair came to town. Jose Andres had, you know, really started to like ascend uh, the staircase of, of being famous there. There were a lot of like really awesome cooks that were there, but people were, you could kind of like feel a change in the air as far as, you know, the sophistication of the food scene there. Um, and, you know, I not knowing anything about anything was like, well, maybe we should be more sophisticated here at Garrett's. And that was not, <laughs> that was not probably the actual way to go. So I was always trying to do too much there. I would suggest cocktails and the other bartenders would be like, yeah, I'm, I'm not making that. Uh, helped out with uh, making some menu changes on the food menu. And in order to like make that happen, I had to go like work the line for sure. For sure. Just trying a little bit too hard there. That was a place that just kind of had its place in time and existed and was good to the people that, that were good to it. Yeah. DC's kind of a, a, for so long, I feel like most of the downtown, it's all political based. So it's, you know, people want to meet and they want to go out to eat, but they all have like probably their, certain places that they want to go and they don't really deviate because it's, you know, whether they won't be seen or they will be seen or whatever. I feel like that's the old guard. You know, I think that was, that was one of the things that, that was kind of happening while I was there. DC moves in cycles, you know, it, it has to do with basically who's in the white house as to who's, who lives in DC, you know, the, the administration changes uh, and a bunch of people leave and a bunch of other people come uh, and there's a lot of turnover, even, you know, inside of that time. So the group of people that was in D.C. while I was there, and honestly, that culture has really kind of persisted, which I think is what you'll see in D.C. getting the Michelin Guide uh, and, and the food scene there really, really taking off was that people were willing then to give every new place a shot. Like, hey, there's this new place and we're going to go try it. And if it's good, it's going to be full. And if it's bad, it's not going to be there. And so it really generated a real sense of urgency. Like I've worked at one of those places that wasn't great and ended up not being there anymore. So you never went to culinary school, right? I did not, no. Any regrets of not doing it? You know, when I was at Enox, and I mean, I will, I will carry that around as my primary culinary education because there are so many talented people there that went to culinary school. Like 
I worked with all CIA grads. We would talk about it all the time because I was kind of in the back of my head. I was looking at the FCI. I was thinking about maybe trying to get into the CIA. And, you know, I would, you know, talk to them about those ideas uh, and plans. I'm not sure if it was because they needed me to stay there and work on my shift or <laughs> they really had my best interest at heart. Um, but everyone told me, you know, they felt like I would learn more working in a kitchen of, you know, like motivated, talented people uh, than I would learn in culinary school, or at least what I would earn, what I would learn would be more applicable day to day. What would you say to somebody super interested in pursuing being a chef as a career, working in your kitchen and say, hey, you know, do you think I should go to culinary school or do you think I should just kind of target a few different restaurants to work at and learn from certain people? Let me start with saying that I feel unqualified to answer this question because I did not go to culinary school. The answer to this question is informed by people around me that have gone to culinary school and then my experience with culinary school graduates. And so my opinion is uh, that you can probably get up to speed on how to exist in an actual functioning restaurant kitchen better by working in one than going to culinary school. And like I said, that's based on my experience with graduates primarily. 2010, I think you come back to Columbus, right? I came back to Columbus probably mid-2012. And is that when you first went to OSU? No, that was before. That was after. That was directly after high school. I was on the school newspaper, and I thought, uh, the, the high school newspaper, and I thought, I really liked it. Um, and I got involved very lightly with the Columbus Association of Black Journalists and thought that was a path I wanted to go down, but I did not. I have a real strong streak of not wanting people to tell me what to do. And I was like kind of learning how newsrooms work. And I was like, when I get into this industry, I want to do what I want to do. I'm going to write a story about whatever I want to write about. And they were like, that's not how any of this works. <laughs> You're going to do what people tell you to do. And as a matter of fact, you don't even get to write what you actually think about these stories. You write what they tell you to write. And maybe I didn't want to do that. So then when you do come back to Columbus, and that was with the Swoop Food Group, the food truck that you haggled, negotiated, brought back? I drove it back from Maryland. I got a really good deal on it. I was like in the middle of rural Pennsylvania and the coolant line exploded. And I was just stranded there for a couple of hours. I looked, I looked out and breaking down across the street from this really nice, like random guy in the woods who decided that he would help me get out of there. He like, you know, got some water in, the, in it and helped me get to his mechanic and like waited for me and made sure I had a phone to use. And like, because back then, like I had a cell phone, but there was no charger in, in the truck. So I was just like probably three hours out of DC. I was bathed out, like just driving through the woods, like with a route that I memorized in my head. I think my map had probably blown out of the window because there was no air conditioner anyway. So the, you know, the windows were open. So I was just like giving it a shot. And I really lucked out, like I said, to break down across the street from a guy that was like super like chill and helpful uh, and able to get the food truck back here in, in more or less one piece. So what was Swoop? What was the idea, vision behind that? It was not, it was not my idea. Um, <laughs> I had a friend here that when I was in D.C. was talking about opening a food truck. And I was like, oh, what I could probably do is help you find a food truck because we have a little bit more of a robust culture out there. And I'll come back and I'll help you get started. And then I'm going to go back to D.C. And while that was happening, my mom got pretty badly injured at work. Uh, and it felt like time to actually, you know, come on home for a little while. And that turned into coming on home forever. So when you're doing the food truck, I mean, you mentioned earlier, kind of like fine dining out of a food truck. Is that kind of the concept? I was making like, you know, pureed bisques and uh, braised pork belly and braised short rib and like, you know, a bunch of like grain salads and like some really fun. I 
was pretty sure delicious food. And people would kind of like walk up to the truck and they'd look at the menu and they'd be like, do you have pizza? <laughs> like, no, we don't have pizza. We just have this food that's here on the menu if you're interested in that at all. And they were like, no, nah, we're going to go get a pita. So, you know, we ended up throwing in some other things like, you know, so then we would do, a, you know, braised bacon uh, glazed in uh, barbecue sauce on a, as a slider. We were doing, you know, like the smash burger that I'm doing now, kind of like grew from the smash burger I was doing on the truck. We were doing a jerk fried chicken slider. And then we were hand making tater tots, which was a really big deal back in the day. Do you think that you were just too early with it? Because like the food truck culture like exploded maybe around that time or just a couple of years after. And then it was any potential restaurant that anybody was starting. It was like, you got to have a food truck first. You should have a food truck. And everybody kind of jumped into the scene. And it's probably tapered off a little bit now. Part of that might be because of COVID and stuff too. But do you think it would work now looking back on it? I feel like part of it was as far as popularity. Um, I think part of it was that it was maybe a little bit too early for the kind of food that we were trying to put out. I mean, I would also say that, yeah, a lot of people say that um, and they're wrong. The good thing about a food truck is that the, the barrier to entry financially is lower. The bad thing is literally everything else. Like, you know, if you have a restaurant, you go to your restaurant where they bring you your gas, they bring you your electricity, uh, the people come to you, you have a walk-in full of stuff that you can go into and get more. And you just don't have that on a food truck. You know, your earning potential is capped by the amount of stuff that you can take out on the road with you. So for building a name, or if your intention is to have, you know, like, you know, a food truck empire, that's one thing. You know, a lot of people say, oh, like, I'm going to open a food truck and save enough money to open a restaurant. Like, you're not. That's not going to happen. Someone might give you money or, or loan you money to open a restaurant. And I really hope that happens for everyone. That's their dream. The food truck life is a really, really, really difficult. There's a full quarter of the year where like people aren't coming. Like people aren't coming, but the places that want you there still want you there. I remember the first winter, it was a really, really rough winter. I replaced the the plumbing in the truck three times uh, because it exploded. Like the pipes froze and like it burst. And it was just like, I would keep a cannon eater in there and it just wasn't enough to keep up with it. You know, it was just, it was just a really, really brutal time of, of life. But, you know, some good things came out of it. I met a lot of people that like my, liked my food then and still, you know, I think like my food to this day. I opened a pop-up at um, the Hey Hey uh, Bar and Grill, which is out here on the, on the east side. And met the Gauls. They're just like, they're just wonderful people. Got a, a nice lifelong, hopefully, relationship. I put out some food that I really like, uh, both on the truck uh, at the Hey Hey. So it's not all bad, but I just, you know, when people talk about food trucks, I want people to know, people ask me fairly frequently, you know, what do you think about a food truck? You know, how do I get into that business? And my, you know, probably don't. It's probably not going to end up being the easiest path to getting to where you want to go. With the pop-up that you started, was that just born out of food truck just not really working out? It was probably it was probably the heydays for the for the food truck. It was probably at the height of the food truck popularity. There used to be another food cart here called the Coop, and they were operating the kitchen at the Hey Hey as a pop-up, which the Hey Hey has kind of kind of turned into an incubator uh, for kind of like small concepts that way. A lot of people have popped up in that kitchen and, and made some really interesting food. And she was leaving and it was an opportunity. And I went and sat down and talked to Sue and we were both kind of looking at each other like, I don't, I don't know about this. But we got in there and we, we really love each other now. What was your goal with the pop-up? Did you have one going in? Like, I want to see if people like this style of food. So maybe I can kind of eventually move into like a restaurant space of my own with it. Or was it just like, this sounds like fun. Like, I just kind of want to mess around with it for a little bit. My partner at the time, who I'm still really good friends with, his name was Lyle. He was pretty, um, 
instrumental to the, the success that we did have, which never included money. We had been working together for a good chunk of time and we wanted to open a restaurant. We wanted it to be like um, a more traditional style tapas restaurant where we weren't like constrained to necessarily the tradition of the food, but the tradition of the service model. So you come in, you hang out. Here's, you know, here's a couple of bites of food, you know, like people recognize it as, you know, probably like Bonchan at, at Korean restaurants. And we were going to open a place that that did that. And we were hoping that Baby, which was our pop up at the Hey, would kind of like been into that. But it's really, really rough industry. It's hard. At the same time, that's kind of when you were already at the Flatiron, right? I moved into the Flatiron post food truck, post Baby. Yeah. Not immediately, <laughs> believe it or not. Like I, to that point, you know, all the like Columbus stuff you can get, you know, like the personal lot and, you know, case maker and stuff like that. Like that all happened for me while I was operating the food truck. And then when I closed the food truck, I looked for, I tried to, I tried in earnest to get a job in every decent kitchen in the city for probably seven months and couldn't get a phone call back. Steve took a shot on me. I moved in there and like uh, one of the first things we did was make some equipment changes. And that's kind of the genesis of the burger that everyone that I serve now that everyone likes, you know, I went from being like a slider burger to an actual full-size burger when it really started to kind of like catch on with people. Uh, we also were doing a lot of like fun food. We were doing like a, like a spaghetti and meatballs where we cooked the spaghetti and dried it out and then fried it. So it like exploded and, you know, got all puffy and then served like a meatball with marinara and like this pile of a crispy spaghetti on it. We were doing a lot of like really interesting, fun food. The flat iron has a had and probably still has now that it's changed hands like a really loyal following for a very long time and they just kind of want the food they want i did my turn there and moved on and took over the kitchen at the rossi why do you think nobody called you back was it just they looked at like oh you're a food truck guy you won't get it i mean if i'm honest like when i first started floating the idea of coming back to columbus on my resume were at the time probably two of the most well-regarded restaurants in dc um i didn't get a phone call back then either I have a lot of opinions about that. I'm going to keep them inside of my body. Running the Flatiron, though, that was like your first head chef CDC type role. What was the biggest kind of challenge with that? Like, because you felt at that time like you were ready to run a kitchen, right? I, I did. You know, it was my first time like ordering on scale, you know, like for the food truck. I mean, I did a lot of shopping for the food truck at the grocery store, you know, went to the restaurant depot, like occasionally we had, um, a produce, we worked with the premier produce one. I was raw at the time, I think for some stuff, but it was, you know, kind of like really small, like ordering on scale was a, was a, was a different thing, you know, like making a plan to feed, you know, hundreds of people a day was a big change in the way that I'd been previously operating and, and like, definitely like a big change that I needed to make. I mean, also I was working, the menu there was my menu. You know, I was working a station every day, you know, peppering all that stuff in, peppering all the responsibilities of running a kitchen in um, with, you know, having to be ready for service on your station is, is a thing that got a lot of people uh, at that phase in their career are going to have to deal with. There are a lot of owners that want to save money to the detriment of how a kitchen runs. How could I possibly be responsible for all the food going out of this kitchen if I can't look at it? You know, like if I'm working saute, if I'm working the busiest, most intricate station, how could I possibly be making sure that food's going out to the quality that we needed to be going out? How did the opportunity with the Rossi come about? Did they reach out to you? Did you apply to them? Yeah, I applied for that job. I kind of reached a plateau in pay and possibilities at the Flatiron. 
and I was looking for something else. Um, and you know, again, I wasn't getting, <laughs> I wasn't getting very many phone calls. Corbin did call me and we went and sat down at club 185 and had a chat about what they felt like they wanted at the Rossi and what I felt like I wanted out of what was next in my career. And at the time it seemed like a really good fit. What was the biggest difference between running the kitchen at the flat iron versus running the kitchen at the Rossi? So Steve Nicholson was, you know, technically the chef at the flat iron. So I had a safety outlet. Uh, even even if sometimes he was like, hey, this, I don't think people are going to buy it. I don't think people want it. You know, helping me talk through how things were going to work or figuring out, you know, managing staff. But at the Rossi, I was kind of just there on my own. Um, you know, like, hey, here's a staff that's been here much longer than you. Might be here way after you're gone. So you figure out those dynamics. Um, you figure out not working here and get it to work. I, I would say there are some other challenges involving what our disparate visions were for, you know, food in that place. You know, like I was interested in the Rocky because it had a, a legacy that started with, for me with Andrew Smith, who was a person I really, really look up to. Um, I was really excited to be there in that place and have the opportunity to carry on that legacy. You know, Columbus is one of those places where for a really long time, and honestly, probably still in some ways now, people develop a really strong connection to the food that they like. I ate this steak here 12 years ago. And it's not on the menu anymore. You're like, well, you know, it's been 12 years and they don't they don't really care. They want the thing that they want because that's what they had. That's what they knew they liked. And trying something new or different preparation, I think it's been a challenge. Getting people to try something new or different preparation, I feel like it's been a challenge for the Columbus food scene uh, for a really long time. That I think is finally starting to soften a little bit. Yeah, there's definitely a group of people that enjoy eating out, but they have their certain restaurants that they go to. They don't try any new restaurants. I kind of feel like it's probably people in the suburbs. And, you know, even if they come downtown, it's why did you change the menu? Why is the menu different than it was when I was here two, three months ago? It's frustrating, but I kind of, and I kind of get it, honestly, you know, like, so we don't have no way to get around here in Columbus, you know, uh, public transportation wise. So it's not like they like hop on a train and like came down to spend the evening. And when people come in from the suburbs, they've chunked out some money to have this night and they want to have a good time and they want to enjoy what they're going to get. And they haven't had the opportunity to build a kind of relationship with, you know, maybe the people who run the kitchens at these new restaurants or the new people in the kitchen at the restaurants that they're used to going to. And they just get really, really married. I don't I mean, I don't think this is a good thing, uh, but this far along in my career, I think I'm finally starting to understand it. People are really hedging their bets. They want to have a good time. If they know they're going to have a good time while they're experimenting, they're down like all right, we're going to go try this thing. We know it's going to be good because this guy does a good job. But if they don't know that for sure, then they're going for the sure thing. Yeah, I don't think COVID helps matters either with people being more open to trying new things or experiencing new restaurants. Maybe I'm only able to go out to eat this one time and then things flip over to being like semi-locked down again and I can't go back out. So I want to go to this exact thing that I know that I enjoy. COVID's not helping with anything. What I would say is, I'm going to say especially that it's turned into a thing, you know, where here recently people feel more entitled to the things that they want than I think I've ever experienced before. They want it exactly like that. They want it exactly how they want it. They want it literally right now. And they want you to be grateful that they're there. It's definitely been challenging uh, to say the least. Yeah, we kind of saw that firsthand last night. We were at a, a place 
And a couple came in and they're talking to the the hostess or whatever. They were like, well, no, we made a reservation for the counter. They're not doing the counter tonight. They're doing a separate thing. You know, we got you as close to the kitchen so you can see like it's possible. And they just like, we're not having it. It's like, well, they're not using the counter because that's not what they're doing tonight. And also they might not be able to use it because of COVID and masks and stuff like that. They can't have you like right up in their faces. They eventually sat at the table that was close and everything, but it was just kind of like read the situation that you're in, you know, like have some objectiveness to what's going on around you. It's been an opportunity to kind of teach people those things about restaurants. As long as I've been in the industry, I've recognized that there's a breakdown in the understanding of the difference between a a server and a servant (laughs) by a really large segment of the population. And, you know, we, and a lot of people have been trying to do that work of like educating people, you know, like, like we are people, you know, people walk by us at the North market and we're like, Hey, how you doing? And they're like, I'm just looking. And we're just like, I was just saying, hello, I will never make that mistake with you again. Looking at people beyond, you know, what you need from them or what you want from them and like seeing them as human beings that make mistakes and like are maybe having a bad day and need to pay their bills and like don't want to get in a fight with you about like whether or not you should have to wear a mask or that you should be able to get your burger like mid-rare. Like, no, this is just, you know, like this is just how this is here. And there are plenty of places for you to go get the thing the way that you want it, including your house. We've had a lot of people like really go out of their way to show support in those ways and like be really awesome people. Unfortunately, those are the things that don't always like stand out. When did you know that you were ready to open your own restaurant, Ambrose and Eve with Katie? I'm not positive that I did know or that it was time. I feel capable of operating a business. I feel capable of running a kitchen. I make good food. Um, I have clear expectations for service. You know, I know how to, to order produce and I, I know how to manage staff. That was a really, really good opportunity and like a shining moment in my life for a, a really brief, beautiful moment. We were putting out really, really good food the way that we wanted to put it out to a group of people that really appreciated it. Uh, the pandemic, you know, kind of like cut that short. I feel like it is as with it would be for anything. You don't really know you're ready until you're doing it. A thing that's really difficult in Columbus, honestly, we have so many talented people here that are like really great at what they do and like good people and probably would run really amazing restaurants uh, and bars. The setup for investment that exists in top tier, you guys can't see my fingers, my air quotes, in top tier cities for restaurant development uh, don't exist here. They're just, there's, there's no floor for it. Um, if you happen to run into someone that has the money and wants to open a distillery with a restaurant attached, you might get the opportunity to do what you want to do. You know, there are people in town that have large restaurant groups and have a really good opportunity ahead of them where they could provide a platform to people to do really cool things. Uh, and they and they do the other thing. And it's really it's sad to see. Um, so, I mean, I'd love to see. So as for instance, in, in D.C., which will always be my, you know, my, the thing that I point to, there's a group of young people there with money and they like going out to eat. Uh, and they band together in like fun restaurants. I'd love to see a group here that does that. You know, their challenges, uh, public transportation, access, you know, getting people to kind of turn the rest of the corners forward, like, you know, trying some new and interesting things. But I, I feel like, you know, if Columbus wants to get where it's going, um, it's something we're going to have to figure out. 
So yeah, what you're saying basically is like bigger cities, there are people that are going to redevelop buildings and stuff like that, and they can fund restaurants. But Columbus, you're kind of on your own, really, to do it. I mean, there's a few people that do do it. But for the most part, if you want to start a restaurant in Columbus, you're pretty much on your own. Absolutely. Or, you know, another difference is, you know, so once a restaurant group in, you know, say Chicago gets established, they are finding people inside of their orbit to allow to explore you know, their ideas, you know, like, hey, I think I'm going to open a Mexican restaurant. And this guy works for me and he's from Mexico and he's good at making food. Let's let him have this restaurant. Let's put up some guardrails, give him some support and try to make the best of it. People are developing talent for the purpose of expansion uh, in a lot of other places. And that's not like, a, that's not really a Columbus trade. I don't really know anyone in town that's doing that. They open a restaurant, it's popular. They open another of the exact same restaurants or they open a restaurant that's popular and they find another restaurant in another city that's popular and clone that restaurant. But like taking someone, the ladies at Charmy's, they're amazing. They make delicious food. Uh, they're, they are, they are in fact, very, very charming people. And I would eat at their restaurant as often as I possibly could. They had a restaurant. Someone should build a restaurant. <laughs> they should do it right away. I hate that we miss out on those kind of opportunities here. So how does that change? Like Columbus does have, despite most of the people that live here, that have lived here for years, a lot of people that feel it's the greatest city in the U.S., despite maybe those feelings, if you look at it objectively, lack of public transportation is a big issue. The fact that the city doesn't really have any boundaries, so most of the expansion takes place outside in the suburbs, even though with some expansion downtown, people don't necessarily want to live downtown. They want to live in the suburbs and come downtown. So how does how does that all change for restaurants here? You know, yeah, as the population, you know, you get younger people more interested in food and stuff like that, like it'll kind of change, but that's a slow change. Is there a way to change it faster or is it just like you need people that have a good amount of cash to fund stuff move here? I feel like it's probably related to to funding, you know. I think about I don't want to I don't want to put anyone on the spot cuz this work is difficult. But I think about a lot of places that are just not that good. Like they're, they're fine. Uh, or their, or their menu is the same menu at 30 other restaurants, you know, within, you know, a 10 mile radius, but it, it, you know, they're kind of redundant. People go because they used to like it or they went one time and they, you know, they had a good time. Uh, people do support those things. I think, I think we have to like educate people about like how food works and, and why food costs what food costs at places that people think are expensive. I think that's part of it. I think the people that, you know, put up VC to build tech startups and office buildings and, you know, like real estate and, you know, all of these things. Uh, I wish there was a younger subset of them or just a subset of them that and dedicate themselves to bringing those experiences here and, and giving people access to those same things because it is holding the city back. Uh, we want to attract top tier uh, tech employees. We want to attract people to work at the medical center here. And what we can offer them is, well, not so affordable housing anymore. <laughs> um, and a culture scene, which we have some amazing things here, and I don't want to take anything away from them, but a culture scene that around those high points is kind of flat. Uh, it's the same thing with like the restaurant scene. We have some really high points and people that are doing some really, really good work here. Around it, it's kind of flat. And if we want to attract, like, why would I move here and pay basically the same amount of money to live at this point instead of moving to Chicago, where I can go like see awesome shows all the time and eat like really fun, diverse meals uh, and have a much easier time getting around? 
you know, like, why would I make the decision to move to Columbus? Uh, and it's the same thing for like companies that are making decisions about where they're going to open their campuses. You know, I think those things do factor into those decisions. I would hope that people that have money to push this forward would kind of look at it that way. About a year into Ambrose and Eve, you officially opened Preston's. What made you decide to take on another project? In hindsight, everything that's happened since, obviously, it was the right decision. But, you know, you're running a restaurant. It's pretty new. And then you're like, yeah, I'm going to start this other thing, too, as well. Like Preston's actually started before Ambrose and Eve. Um, it started out as the Ambrose and Eve Burger Shack. We were open down the block in a bar called Three Sheets. We were trying to meet the neighborhood. Hey, like... You know, it started off as just like a like a one-off pop-up, a junk food pop-up, honestly. Uh, and then people responded so well to it, and we were so happy with the food. And it kind of didn't want to lose momentum with that brand. And we decided to, to, to rebrand it. You know, Ambrose and Eve are Katie's grandparents. Uh, Preston is my grandfather. We decided to kind of rebrand that concept and and try to try to keep it going. Um, you know, we feel like I feel like I feel like Preston's is as good as you know. Any, any burger that you can put beside it. I feel like it holds up against, you know, like a Shake Shack burger. And I mean, like a good one, like, you know, on the East Coast. I feel like it holds up against Small Cheval. I feel like it holds up against, I feel like it holds up against In-N-Out. I felt like here in the Midwest, we like to make statements about things. We like to have our version of things. I felt like Preston's could be the, the Midwest, Ohio's, Columbus's burger. So it started out as a pop-up, then it went to food truck. Was that the same food truck that you had? Previously, or was it a new food truck? No, it was uh, it was actually Katie's food truck, the, the Hollow food truck. Um, when I closed Swoop, I uh, sold that food truck. So, you know, years before then. The food truck's gone now, right? Now it's just North Market. Yeah. Looking kind of back on it, did that chain of events, like, are you happy with it? Or like looking back on it, you're like, man, maybe you, you should have skipped the food truck and gone right into like a, you know, a market stall. Or do you think like, because sometimes it's just you need to do the one thing to get yourself to the next step. And it's just kind of like, this leads to that. I don't know if I'd really thought about it that way. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I, I feel like, so like in the North Market, we're meeting tons of people that have never had Preston. You know, if that was the first place we opened, uh, it would be as popular as it is now or, or more, you know, in, in short order. I think the thing that I like most about all of my food truck, all of my food truck experience is uh, the amount of like really awesome people that I've, like the people that are like, you know, really cool people that folks that own Seven Sun, you know, Jim Burton's like a super rad person, the people from uh, the, from all the breweries, you know, like uh, that host food trucks have been great relationship I have with the golf from uh, the Hey Hey. And then, I mean, so many, so many guests uh, and customers, you know, over the years um, that I still see, you know, like often I still like make sure I have a little bit of pudding laying around because it's a birthday. Like food trucks generally have given me the opportunity to kind of meet and build a relationship with the city. When the opportunity with the North Market came around, were you just instantly like, yes, that's perfect? Or did you have any apprehension because of everything that was going on with the pandemic and everything? It was like, our market's going to still work? COVID made everything really much more terrifying than it normally would be. We looked at, I looked at the opportunity at the North Market. And at that time, you know, the people that were open at the market were really, you know, going through it. You know, a lot of people were off sales quite a bit. People were really kind of had been taking their People that were still open at the market were kind of like taking their health in their own hands and like really taking a taking a little bit of a risk, you know, being open, forward facing to to customers that you know 
don't always care that much about the health of the people that they're that they're patronizing. But I feel like it was a really good decision. Uh, I feel like the North Market's been great for us. The the group of people that are there are awesome and supportive. Uh, so a lot of really, really talented people there that have been super generous with their time and their their expertise and their advice. It, it ended up being a good thing, but it was really, really stressful getting into it. When Ambrose and Eve, you know, closes, it's one of the casualties basically of the pandemic. I mean, I think you left maybe two months before, but you guys weren't open at that point. But not for, you guys didn't just, close it like you guys tried stuff you ran out your inventory you know you tried the to-go model which isn't sustainable tried to get a ppp loan did it just when did you kind of know it was the end like did it always just seem like everything we try to do is just not working so it's just inevitable or did it just reach a point where you're like ah what are we gonna do you know i had you know i kind of had my opinions about the future of the restaurant uh, and they were not the same as Katie's. And we kind of couldn't come to an accord about what to do. That's when she asked me to kind of head in another direction. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, the day that they announced the shutdown was kind of like one of the more terrifying days of my life because, I mean, I knew the impact I was going to have at our brand new restaurant. You know, like a restaurant isn't, no, no restaurant successful in the first year. No restaurant's like in the black in their first year. And I knew the I knew the negative effect I was going to have on us immediately. Um, and what I didn't know was how long it was going to last, and 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 what turns that was going to take. You know, I was kind of focusing on service um, because there were two of us, um, and Katie really had a lot of dedication uh, to succeeding that in in that in that space. And then, I mean, you know, one thing that did come out of it, you and it sang Lakani and Letha Pugh, you guys founded uh, Service. You know, the non kind of nonprofit for restaurant industry workers. Reed Woodgird is another one uh, who's involved with that. It was Reed, uh, myself, Letha Pugh, uh, Singita Lakani, Shelly Mann, and George Alexander. The nonprofit that you guys started, why did you start it? How did that come about and how's it going today? Yeah, so it kind of started as, you know, in the beginning of the of the pandemic, I don't know, the pandemic proper, and we're not through it yet. I remember there's this um, Facebook group, um, the Ohio Chef Collective, and we were kind of having some conversations and talking about the aid that we were trying to figure out what was going to be available and when and how to apply for this and how to apply for that. And a conversation kind of struck up about, you know, like, what could we do here and now? And Sang and I split off and had kind of a, a separate conversation. And we were like, well, we know one thing. Uh, a lot of people that work in the front of the house went from, you know, like having money to pay their bills and buy food one day to not having money and not being able to pay their bills the next day and having no idea when unemployment was coming through. None of us had any idea when or if restaurants were ever going to be a thing again. You know, like it was just so early that we just had no idea what was going on. People were dying and getting, people were getting really, really sick and people were dying. And it was in the the circles were closing in on all of this, you know, like, and we knew that something that people needed was food. And we knew that was something that we could do. So, you know, we started reaching out for help and, you know, Shelly man came on board and uh, Georgia Alexander came on board to kind of help us do some organization and communication and Reed Woodyard, who was in the middle of a move to Austin, or maybe already had moved to Austin, um, leveraged some of his connections here and really helped us kind of get a, a, a social media presence, uh, set up. And then Letha also leveraged a lot of her, her, uh, contacts here, 
the ECI stepped up, Wasserstrom stepped up, uh, Cover My Med stepped up. Everyone kind of stepped up and supported this thing in a way that I didn't expect. You know, people told us in the very beginning that, you know, by the time we got a nonprofit situated and we're able to start serving meals, that there's a good chance that the pandemic was going to be over. I don't know if they meant we were all going to be dead <laughs> or that, you know, it was going to be over, but they felt like we weren't going to be able to do it in a timely fashion. But within just a few weeks of starting to have the conversation, we were at the food court making food and enhancing it out because we knew it was something we knew it was something that we could do and we knew it was something that people needed immediately. You know, around some of the time, around the time when we started to see a lot of protests, there were a couple of days where it felt maybe not safe to provide food service in a couple of the locations that we were that we were distributing food from. We took those days off. Shortly after that, we started to hear about, you know, people getting called back to work, whether they wanted to be called back or not. And we felt like the model needed to change a little bit. So we switched over to a direct cash aid where we were writing checks for people. We, I think we gave out, I think over $50,000 uh, in, in grants. Uh, and now we're moving on to a phase, which hopefully we'll be able to talk about soon. We help provide some education opportunity for people that are new to the industry. And we're going to work on professionalization and, and you know, like job training, trying to, trying to level set a good place for people entering the industry and also nudging people towards being, you know, Better citizens of the of the hospitality industry, you know, treating their people uh, nicely, trying to encourage everyone to charge what they should charge for food. Like, you know, like let's not be in this race to the bottom. Let's cover your costs. Let's try to like make enough money to pay your people the way that people need to be paid. You know, Columbus, uh, in my in my experience, we have a we have a I want to say an inferiority complex. We're very sensitive to image. So back in the day, I was in city year, just right after high school. And we used to, when you're in city year, uh, it's uh, run by the Corporation for National Service, Voluntary Community Service. You are not allowed during the hours of your city year day to drive. You have to take public transportation. I just remember like telling people that I would get up and get on the bus and go to work. And people would be like, oh, you get on the bus? <laughs> like, you broke. Like, no, I'm not. Okay, I am broke. <laughs> That's true. But I'm not on the bus because I'm broke. I'm on the bus because it is an efficient way to get me where, I'm, where I need to go. I'm not allowed to do, you know, I'm not allowed to get there any other way. People here are very sensitive. I feel like the reason that we don't have a, a robust uh, bus system and uh, public transportation is because people avoid it because they feel like it makes them look like, you know, they are poor people. They cannot afford a car. And I think that that carries over to different things. I think that Columbus is very excited about its its identity as as a bunch of regular people. We're regular people and we like regular food, like chicken wings and cedar salads. I don't think we necessarily have to be tied to those things. Leading to a part that you just kind of touched on, charging what they need to charge, because you said, and I'm quoting you here, uh, we don't pay enough because we don't charge enough. We haven't adjusted for inflation or overhead. How does that change? Like, how do you get people to understand food costs beyond a tank of gas and a gallon of milk? Well, I mean, a tank of gas and a gallon of milk is not a bad starting place. <laughs> so, you know, you think about what you're paying for that gallon of milk. Uh, you think about what you pay for, you know, five pounds of sugar. Uh, you think about like how much bananas cost and you can figure out how much it costs to make, you know, four ounces of banana pudding. <laughs> and if you figure out how much it costs to make four ounces of banana pudding, then you know that I cannot sell it to you for two dollars. You know, it's not a, it's not a bad place to start. I think it's going to be, you know, kind of a concerted educational push. You know, I know that there are tons of people that are looking at their menu prices right now and saying, man, I should probably be charging more. Chicken wings are incredibly expensive right now. I am paying $160 for a case of gloves right now. 
like everything's very expensive right now. What were you paying before? 80 to 100 bucks. So it's like doubled. It was like 100 bucks in football season because wings get more expensive in football season. But before football season, I, I'm honestly, I need to go and see what my chicken wings cost today because before football season, they were 115, 160 bucks a case. I think that, you know, people are looking at their menu prices and they recognize that they probably need to make some changes um, or hopefully they recognize they need to make some changes. And I think they're worried that people aren't going to come buy the food because they don't know. And it's going to have to, you know, it has to be kind of a dual pronged approach like hey I, i'm gonna have to move these prices and, and and i want you to know like here's some transparency about why i am doing that you know like not only are things more expensive but you know like our service staff which not the service staff at any place that i can think of that I, you know i really like to go or have a lot of respect for but there is a lot of service staff that makes like you know below minimum wage you know like server minimum wage is a couple of bucks an hour i think people need to understand you know like what you pay and tips give people more opportunities. It's only going to make those experiences that you have at restaurants better because people are going to look at restaurant jobs as professional jobs. It's something to be proud of. And you, when you work in restaurants in a, you know, against, again, air quotes, top tier city, people ask you where you work and you say, I work at, you know, Smith Loyalist, or you say, I work at um, Maidan or I work at Rose's Luxury. And people are like, that's fucking awesome. That, I love that place. That's amazing. And you're like, yeah, I made that, you know, pastrami this, or I make it to your cocktail. And it's a job that you can be proud of. And here you're like, hey, what do you do for a living? And people are like, I'm in a band, dude. <laughs> like, and it's like, that's awesome. Like, I wish, I wish that I could pay my bills by writing because that's a hobby of mine. I cannot. And then you're like, oh, no, I don't. I, I don't pay my bills that I'm a server at this place or that place, you know, five days a week. And it's like, oh, man, like you're a server. And it's, it's OK to be that. It's OK to be a cook. You know, and I think like professionalization is a big part of it. But it, the more places that are pushing to have a good environment where people aren't abused and yelled at, to have an environment where people are paid fairly, to have an environment where like we are putting an appropriate value on the work that we do the easier it's going to be for everyone else to do it. And the easier it's going to be for people that are just getting started to succeed. You know, there, we have lost, we have lost the most talented cooks, you know, future chefs and bartenders that we will ever have access to. Uh, we lost them before the pandemic because they worked somewhere where they were mistreated. We worked, we, they worked somewhere where people made them feel like they couldn't do it. We worked somewhere where they weren't taught what they needed to know and we're just abused out of the industry. And so the next John Shields or the next Jose Andres probably works somewhere. And now they're, you know, somewhere doing something else. And that's, that's our loss. Columbus is a burger town. I think it's probably easier to write a list of the restaurants that don't have a burger on their menu versus the ones that do. What makes a good burger? I think that good beef with a good fat ratio, I think that you need a sauce with some acidity, even if it's just like a really acidic mayonnaise. That mayonnaise serves a couple of different purposes. It helps seal the bun uh, so that you get the juice from your burger, which hopefully has an appropriate amount of fat in it and doesn't like fog out your bun. I think you need some sharpness from a little onion. And I think, I really think American cheese is important. It can be American Swiss cheese. It can be American whatever kind of cheese. But I think American cheese is important because it melts and coats the right way. Um, I feel like it gives you an extra little like salty, creamy punch. A lot of other stuff is modular. I don't think you should put arugula on a burger ever. I used to put arugula on a burger 
someone out there is thinking that <laughs> like but you used to put arugula on your burger. I did. It was stupid. I wish I hadn't done it. You know, I think uh, a finely shredded or well-maintained like piece of iceberg is a good way to go. If the burger is going to be eaten within a few minutes because it's crispy, provides like some some coolness and a little bit of like liquid and just like a textural contrast. I also would like a, um, I like a bread and butter pickle. My, my only like kind of non-negotiables are a toasted bun burger that's not like completely hammered all the way with, you know, some good fatty beef. And honestly, yeah, it's American cheese. Like, I don't want cheddar cheese on my burger. So you're getting ready to open standalone restaurant, Honey's Fried Chicken and Biscuits. Is that going to also have Preston's on the menu burgers there too, or is it just going to be standalone? We are going to open a dual concept. The space is going to be split between two restaurants. Half is going to be Preston, half is going to be Honey's Fried Chicken. And then Preston's still going to stay at the North Market? And we'll stay at the North Market, yeah. So if people are listening and they don't know, you guys did a pop-up. You started doing breakfast, biscuits, chicken sandwiches, stuff like that. Tudor's Biscuits World from your childhood days is something you were trying to pay and are paying homage to. It somehow was convoluted, taken the wrong way, that has led to a lot of negativity and just outright harassment that you've had to deal with. From my perspective, if you don't like it, fine. You don't have to eat it. You don't have to comment on it. I don't see anything wrong with what you're doing, paying homage to something from your childhood. I think that's how you keep food alive from stuff. You know, if nobody did that, then you'd half of what Sean Brock does wouldn't exist anymore. I also don't see people complaining about food appropriation of Detroit pizza here in Columbus. You know, there's two, three places that started doing Detroit pizza, but I don't see anybody going like, well, no, no, that should only be a Detroit thing. Why are we doing that? How many places have like their version of a Big Mac? Like, this is our version of a Big Mac. That's a thing that cooks do. Cooks, you know, sometimes they're actually just appropriating it. Like, I don't, you know, I, I feel like there, I feel like there's some space for crawl around the edges of that in this conversation. <laughs> I think there's some space for some leveled criticism. I, I did feel like and continue to feel like those folks were barking up the wrong tree. Like someone saw it. They didn't like it. They kind of didn't understand it, which which is easy to take in context when you consider they live in West Virginia. They live 200 miles away and they don't know me and they don't follow my social media. So they just saw this thing disconnected from anything. And it looked like Tudor on purpose. Like It was supposed to look like Tudor's because I love Tudor's. I ate Tudor's that night. I was like sitting at my my partner Cindy like came back from her dad's and like swung swung by and like brought me a biscuit. So I'm sitting here reading these comments like this is wild. Um, like chomping on a biscuit from Tudor. I think the people that piled on were generally well meaning. I just think they were wrong. I spent the first like probably eight years of my life in Huntington. You know, we went to Tudor's a lot. I, it's a thing that I like. We do not have a Tudor's here. I am not opening a Tudor's like restaurant. You know, we're opening a fried chicken restaurant that we will probably have breakfast biscuits at um, because people here like brunch. But, you know, it's just like a fun one-off thing to like try some new recipes. That Duca sausage is delicious. You know, our pastrami bacon is really good. Someone saw it, got a hold of it and had the wrong idea about it. And without asking a question or working to understand what was going on at all, they just like, made some decisions about who I am as a person. Like, like I knew something was wrong when I got like um, Tudor's Biscuit World, not giving them any credit. Sounds about white. And I was just like, ooh, buddy. <laughs> like, uh, I got some bad news for you. I'm not. Try like a little bit. I was called like a rich white chef. I mean, these these comments still exist on Reddit, apparently. And also I did I did 
come across the Twitter, like one of the like master Twitter threads, you know, that was rich white Jeff appropriating Appalachia. And I don't like, I don't have any specific ties to Appalachia. I don't, I'm not, I did not live in the hills. I was in Huntington. I lived in a black neighborhood in Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, it was super flat. <laughs> like I was, I, you know, I went to like a regular school. We didn't have grow vegetables when I lived in West Virginia. Like there was, there was, there was nothing Appalachian about like my upbringing. Um, but I am from there and I do recognize that thing. So, you know, there are a few people I try to like talk down, like, Hey, like, just so you know, keep saying I'm white and rich. I'm neither of those. I am neither of those things by, by far, you know, here's what it is. And here's what I was doing. And, you know, I had a few people kind of like, I had a lot of people just delete their comments and stop posting. I had a couple of people apologize, but vastly, I think what you run into with people is they just like, don't like to be wrong. Like they, they will do anything to avoid being wrong. They will argue. We have video proof over the last four or five years. They will argue on camera something that is completely wrong for months and years uh, just to, you know, just to avoid having to say like, hey, I'm sorry, I was wrong. It was not a good feeling for a day or two, but then, you know, I kind of just like moved on off of it. I don't, you know, like it's a, it's a waste of energy. The the most wise thing I remember when I was a kid, my, um, somebody said something mean about my dad and I was like, I'm the only person that gets saving stuff about my dad. I don't like it. So I was like talking to my dad later and I was like, I was at this place and they said this about, and then they were like, he stopped me and he was like, well, well, wait, he's like, were they talking to me? And I was like, you weren't there. I feel like something's wrong with your brain. This is not the story I was telling you. And he was just like, no, it's like, if they're not, are they going to come say it to me? And I was like, well, no, of course not. They would never say that to you. And he was like, well, then it doesn't have anything to do with me. And I, every time I find myself getting a little upset about something I read on the internet about me, I think about that. Anybody that wanted to talk to me about that, easy to find. They could have found my, my Instagram in a, in a second and be like, Hey, you're a piece of shit. I can't believe you're doing this. And then I would have said, Hey, I don't know. What you're, I don't know what you're talking about. Here's why you're wrong. And we would have squashed that way, but that's not what anyone wanted to do. The people that didn't want to do that at this point doesn't really have anything to do with me. Yeah. The internet's a weird place, especially social media where it's been talked about to death, but you can hide behind anonymity because of usernames and stuff like that. And is it really just 12 people that are complaining about everything that they see on Twitter, you know, and all that stuff? It's wild because you see it all the time. Like they will send, like people will send people after you. They will take this thing, you know, in this case, you know, a biscuit pop-up and they will separate it from all its context and serve it to you because like you should be upset about it. And then people just run from there with, with no, you know, with no interest in figuring out exactly what's going on. They just like, they just go after it. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say I probably like blocked 80 or 90 people. <laughs> like, and explained uh, uh, myself to probably 15 or 20 people and told two or three people to get fucked and insulted one high school student pretty badly about his mother. And then I was like, I got to stop. I'm, I'm at your mama jokes now and I got to stop. It's too much. Is it true that you spent like five years working on the biscuit recipe? I spent a really long time. So I started on that recipe when I was at uh, the Hey Hey. Um, and I was trying to source the flour that I wanted. And at the time, the only flour I could get was the white lily self-rising flour. 
and the biscuits were just really like salty. Like the texture was what I wanted them to be. I had to do a lot of figuring out about like how to handle it because I don't want to add any, um, I don't want to develop much gluten structure. So you have to really, really lightly handle the biscuits and you have to, you have to do things pretty specifically. So uh, yeah, I mean, so probably from the time I was at the Hey Hey to the time I was at Ambrose and Eve with the time that I was trying to get that right. And it was really kind of when I was at Ambrose and Eve, but I felt like I got it right. How do you know when it's time to stop like messing with it? When you look at it and you're like, the things that I would have to do to make this any better are not reasonable. You know, like I could, so there's this place called St. Anselm in, uh, in DC. And what they do is they take their biscuit dough, which has to be made very specifically for this to work. They take their biscuit dough and they sheet it. Uh, and then they fold it and laminate it and sheet it and fold it and laminate it and sheet it until it's basically a croissant biscuit. And it's fucking delicious. <laughs> it's amazing. I took a bite of it and I was kind of mad. Like, yeah, like, yeah, this isn't fair. You shouldn't do that. And I came back and I was just like, man, you know what I could probably do is I could roll this out or like super thin and then fold it or I could buy a sheeter. And like, I did that and it was good. And then I ate it beside a regular biscuit. And I was like, I don't think this is enough of an improvement to justify all this extra work. It's just, there have been a lot of things that I've worked on that way. Um, the fried chicken recipe that we're using now, I was in development for a really long time. It's completely different from the way that I started out frying chicken uh, on the food truck. It's completely different than the, the way that I was frying chicken at the Flatiron. I just learned some things about the process. I learned that I don't think that I personally, I hope people are not at my neck uh, about this. <laughs> I don't think that buttermilk or any dairy belongs in fried chicken. Uh, I think the the lactose uh, caramelizes and burns in the fryer. And so I do something else. There, you know, there's been a ton of things. And yeah, I think I just get to a point where I'm like, okay, I, that's the best I that's the best I can do with this. You know, I I I I went two more versions and it's not a significant improvement. So let's just go back to this thing that's the most reasonable execution of it. Where do you see the food scene in Columbus headed? for the next five, 10 years, the rest of this decade? I think COVID's been a real big like hiccup in the in the progress of the food scene here. I feel like we were on a real sharp curve up and I feel like that's kind of been leveled out uh, a bit. Um, you know, places like Veritas and Chapman's, places like Service Bar, and, and even some of like the old school uh, restaurants here uh, that have always been, you know, on the progressive edge are doing some really like cool, fun things. On the other hand, we still have a lot of... Um, a lot of taco places that we don't need. Like, and I, I feel like people know what I'm talking about. We have people here that can make a bunch of extraordinary tacos. You know, they don't get the opportunity to do so. We have a bunch of like super okay concepts or things that came from, that have come from other places or are very derivative. The people's access to information and, and, and interest in food will drive them to try some new things and attach themselves to like a new way of eating. I hope that like people go eat at Veritas or go eat at Chapman's and have a really good meal, a place that they weren't expecting it. And that they don't just like go back to Chapman's over and over again, demanding that they do the same thing, that they find out that there's variety there and that the menu is going to change and that those things are awesome. And then that leads them to going to go eat at Veritas or going to go eat at Emmett's or going to go eat at all these places that are going to spring up, going to go have a really, really good vegetarian meal or a vegan meal at Commune. I'm hopeful that we will head in that direction. You know, I spent a lot of time in Cincinnati because because I feel like the food scene's a little bit more diverse there. 
Uh, it's a little bit more diverse and it's a little bit more interesting. And it's, I'm just like, it's so, it's so close. Like it's right there. Like I want to get, I want to put people in like a tour bus and just go have weekend tours in Cincinnati and be like, here, eat this donut. Like have this, like, you know, this chicken liver mousse, like eat this like cool thing, like have this turtle. And like, we're going to go back. Um, and I wish would I, I hear this thing that I hate, like I hate it so much. And it's when people say it's good for Columbus. Like it makes me furious because it shouldn't be like, we shouldn't settle for good for Columbus. Like it should be good. It should be good or it should not be good. This isn't kindergarten, you know, like it's good for, a, it's good for a fit, you know, five-year-old. Like it's good or it's not good. And I really wish we would settle into like demanding that things be good. Like, hey, like I'm not going to eat here because it's not that good. And if it's good and if it gets good, I'm going to come back here and I'm going to eat. And if it's and if it stays good, I'm going to eat here. Like, I think that that's the way that we I, I would like for people to direct the get what they want out of the food scene. Like, hey, I'm going to support these places that are really good. And like the places that are not really good, like if I hear that they got good, I'm going to give it a shot. That's how it works. And Chicago, you, you have to like you have to work to stay like relevant and good. Either you're an old school person that makes like an Italian beef exactly the same way you made it, you know, like 80 years ago, and no one's done a better job since, or you are working to not necessarily stay on the cutting edge, but like to serve what you are confident is the best version of everything. You, you might not be right, but like you should you should think that if you are serving a bite of food, that there is not a better version of that around like i think that this is the best version of this burger that of, of a burger that you can get in the city i might want to have a bistro style burger i might want to go to wendy's one day because i'm in a hurry like i might want to you know whatever but like if i'm serving it like i should be confident that it's that it's the best um and if everyone was confident that they were doing this was the best and they were just like punching at the middle i think the food scene here would would be better and i think then for for those reasons it will be better because there are more people here uh that are are not not swinging for the middle with burgers are you able to have a burger from someplace else and not analyze it oh yeah i eat trash <laughs> like i i eat garbage like i understand i understand and appreciate you know like the technique that goes into a lot of like the really good food in the city and i partake of it as often as I can. I mean, I'll go through Wendy's and 10 chicken nuggets, spicy nuggets in like a second. Like I don't, and I'm not thinking about like, oh man, like the batter, the coating on this nugget, extra crispy today. And it's the same thing with burgers. Like, first of all, there are a lot of good burgers in the city. You know, like Chapman's was making a really good burger. I love O'Reilly's pepper burger. Like I think it's, I think it's delicious. I think if I was making that burger, I would do it differently. But for what it is, where it is, like I like it a lot. Um, I'm not, and I'm not in that place where I'm like dissecting it. Really, I think the thing that I want when I go out to eat is I want for the thing that I'm eating to be the best version of it. I go to O'Reilly's, I have a pepper burger. I want that to be a really good pepper burger. I go to Wendy's, I get a burger. I want that to be a good Wendy's burger. I don't expect a Wendy burger, a burger from Wendy's to be uh, a burger from Shake Shack. It's not the same thing. Um, so I just have a different, you know, like level of expectation based on how much time I have in my day, <laughs> you know, if I have some place to be, my blood sugar is like two. After about like a three, four year hiatus, you recently fired up your food blog again, addition to life.com. What made you want to start writing again and 
blog has been an opportunity for me to think about food a little bit more analytically. Like that was at a, I started at a point where I was, I was really like deeply thinking about every bite of food I had and evaluating it and holding it up, you know, besides others. And I feel like that communication is good for people. I feel like it gives them an understanding of sometimes what it goes, what goes into making something, you know, what goes into labor wise, what goes into a dish. And like, and like my opinion about what they said, like matters to someone, you know, <laughs> like it, it, it matters to someone. So I think I'd like to make it uh, available to them. Um, I also like to write. I played around with the idea of being a journalist, you know, who knows, maybe I, maybe I'll work at Cisco uh, when I give up the game or maybe I'll go be a food critic. I don't know. Any future plans, thoughts on expansion? Obviously you guys are opening the new spot there in Groveport, but like even just expanding Preston's into the North market up in Dublin, is that something that you'd be targeting one day down the road or? Yeah. I mean, we're really shaking the money tree right now. I really believe that Preston can be, you know, the, the Midwest's, you know, burger joint. To that end, you know, I'm looking for opportunities and places to be. I'm looking for ways to pay for it. You know, I feel like the concept scales. And I feel like it uh, competes uh, on that level. So I'll be looking to do my best to grow that to the level, to the highest level I can, I can achieve. With that, I don't want to say you have to be careful, but there's a balance, right, to expansion where you don't want to lose the character like the from Columbus, built in Columbus kind of idealism that's with it. Because you can go so far, but then it's like once you get to become almost like a, you know, a regional or even like a national brand, like sometimes that gets lost. It's a, it's a, it, I mean, that's a real thing to bear in, bear in consideration. I feel like it's something I'll have to like balance as we move, as we kind of move through building and executing a plan, but you can see it. Like, I, I'm not like anti, I'm not anti Shake Shack. I love Shake Shack. Uh, Shake Shack on the East Coast is a whole different thing than having a burger at Shake Shack here in Columbus. I don't know if it's, you know, ground beef being shipped across half the country or that they're so disconnected from, you know, like kind of their their roots and so far away that, you know, there's just not, you know, a carryover, but it's just not, it's just not the same. What I've been focusing on over the last, you know, couple of months is trying to get all of our processes as routine as possible. This is, which is something I'm awful at, by the way. Like I don't use, like I don't use recipes. When I make, when I make the batch recipes, uh, at Preston's, people were like, this doesn't look anything like what you told us to make. I'm like, don't look at what I'm doing. You just, you do what you're doing. Like this green grass, this green goddess is extra green today. Get out of my face. Uh, but I've been working to just make the recipes just as routine as possible and like really working to communicate the processes and make sure that things are done correctly. Um, you know, one of the first things that happened was I had people reaching out about franchising Preston's. And I don't, I, I, I don't want to be so big that I would have to franchise. I feel like you lose the uh, the ability to be in control of the product at that point, because, you know, it's my business. I, this, this is, I want to save money on beef. So that's what I'm going to do. You know, I, I feel like it's, that's one of those things I feel like I'm going to have to kind of like play by ear and, and kind of like walk it down carefully and, you know, spend a lot of time in those places, you know, as things grow or who knows, maybe, COVID's worse and I don't open any more questions. I guess we'll find out. This question comes from Chef Joshua Cook over at Ampersand Supper Club. He was a previous guest on the podcast. Uh, he left us behind. What still drives and motivates you to continue down your career path? 
That's a rough thought of you asking me that question. Uh, it's a good question. One of the things that has been really important to me in my career so far as a leader in in a kitchen, you know, or in the industry, or however you want to look at it, is to leave it better than I found it. It was one of our kind of like core tenants in City Year. Uh, so we try to leave any space that we were in better than we than we found it. We switched offices while I was there, and we like deep clean the office on the way out to make sure that it, you know it's like in pristine condition. Um, I have been trying to spend time with the people that work for me to do my best to develop them, so that you know if they move on to an opportunity beyond working for me, that land in that place with a sharper skill set, a, a better developed sense of pride in what they do. Um, they've been encouraged to be creative um, and caring about the people that work with them. If I can achieve uh, the goal of having people say that Matt was like a good person to work for, like Matt taught me a lot, Matt wouldn't put up with that shit, then I'll feel like the time that I've spent uh, in the industry has been well spent. And that is honestly a driving force for me. What question do you want to leave behind to ask the next guest? Why do you do this shit? I don't know. What ways do you feel like you can be a better citizen in the hospitality industry going forward? And I feel like if I'm going to ask some, someone that question, uh, I feel like I should answer it probably. Uh, so it's not a little bit hypocritical. And I feel like I can do that by working to be a little bit more uh, patient uh, with the people that uh, patient and trusting in the people that I put in leadership uh, in the places that I run uh, and give them give them the same opportunities that I wish I had. So we got a handful more questions for you. We ask these everybody uh, who comes on the podcast. So nice compare contrast across the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? I mean, it's really it would be really easy to say like Emerald Lagasse because or you know, it's, it's Emerald or it's my mom. Uh, which you know those are both like valid answers. I gotta say, it's probably John Matheson, who's my chef at Enoch. Uh, he's a really mean guy. I don't know if I've been in a room with a better cook. Like, he just is a natural and he knows more about food than you know, probably he has known and forgotten more about food than I probably ever will. He is a person that, you know, does push and drive the people that work for him to be better. Um, he does not do that in a constructive way. <laughs> But, uh, you know, the people that have been in his orbit are probably better cooks than they would have been by far without him. What's the one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I really like spoons. I don't know if, spoon, I don't know if a spoon is it. I really find an immersion blender to be very useful. You can do a lot of things. I found some things that you can do with an immersion blender that I did not think were possible. Uh, I was watching a video of Paula Velez. Uh, she's uh, out in, in D.C. and she made a Chantilly. She made like whipped cream with her immersion blender. And it was something that I had my entire career thought was impossible. Like I never even tried it. It just seemed stupid. And she did it. And I was like, That's amazing. I didn't know that you could do that. I like got up and went and bought cream, came home, put it in a container and did it. And I was like, holy shit, that worked. Yeah, I think I think I value having an immersion blender in my kid. What's one thing in the restaurant that you wouldn't fix yourself if it broke? A gas line? I feel like uh, there's a lot of capacity for blowing yourself up. Like anything else that I could fix, I would fix, but that would make me very nervous. 
One restaurant you recommend that isn't your own. You know, person gets uh, stuck at the airport, flying through, says, hey, where should I go eat? You guys aren't open. You send them. I'm going to send them to a restaurant, Sheila, uh, S-I-L-L-A, over on Henderson. I love it. The menu's like pretty big, very interesting. They execute food really well. The banchan is normally like great. And I have found out by trial and error that it's actually pretty accessible for people that, I mean, there's some figuring out to do about like what's what, but the food itself is generally pretty accessible to people that don't have like a background eating Korean food. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Bucket list travel destination. I, I would have said a bunch of things until like a few days ago when I talked to saying from my, my partner at service and she just got back from Peru and she made it sound awesome. Like she made it sound kind of awful, <laughs> but the parts of it that I'd be interested in, she made sound like really like awesome and breathtaking. And then I don't know if it's because of our conversation, I've been served with Peru, visit Peru content on, on the internet almost nonstop and it looks beautiful. So I'm going to say probably Peru and bucket list restaurant would have been 11 Madison Park, but they just went vegan and I just kind of am not there yet. Alinea's close, probably the French Laundry, just because I've had a lot of respect for Tom Keller or Chef Keller for my entire career. I know that if I went there, I'd have a, a really amazing meal. I mean, there's, there's no opportunity. There's no chance I wouldn't. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? I was working at a place in D.C. who I'm not going to say the name of. And a rat ran across my feet and got caught in a trap. And... I was like, <laughs> I was like, someone has to come get this rat because it was just like shrieking, like Wah! it was just going nuts because caught in a trap. And I was just like, I'm not, I'm not cooking any more food. This is sad. It's breaking my heart. Uh, it's gross. I'm not, I'm not. Service is done until somebody comes and figures this out. And so they were like trying to get somebody up there. And I get down and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna have to take care of myself. So I like get a broom and I like, get down there. I'm gonna like go get this rat out of here. It ripped its leg off and ran away, and I, I quit. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not, I, this is too much. And I say that is probably the craziest thing I've seen happen at a restaurant. Food or drink guilty pleasure? No, I told you, I eat trash. I don't, I enjoy fast food. I feel like I have, there's stuff to learn from it. I don't even recall the last time I had any kind of hesitation about eating any fast food. I don't. I don't know if I feel guilty. I don't feel guilty about it. I don't, I don't, I don't think I have one. When it's McRib season, I go get a McRib. Maybe I should feel about it. I should feel guilty about how much I uh, drink Starbucks out of convenience. Like there are all these great coffee shops and I go and I go to them. I'm at Roosevelt, you know, once or twice a week. Um, I'm at Stoff's like a ton. But when I'm like on the go and I'm like, man, I need some coffee. I go, I go through Starbucks a lot and I could do better. Favorite dish, favorite thing you've cooked, created, you know, when you're looking back on your career up to this point, kind of the moment that you can point to where, you know, your aha moment where you figured out, yeah, I could do this professionally. Those feel like not the, those feel like not the same thing. So when I was at Enox, I was responsible for the amused. So everybody, when you come in, when you go into that restaurant and lots of others, when you have a tasting menu, you get like one bite of food that's supposed to set the tone for the meal. At that restaurant, everybody uh, at the restaurant got an amused and I was responsible for producing it. And I was supposed to like create and produce it. 
And I had no, I mean, I had no business. Um, I didn't have the experience for it. Like I, nothing anyone should ever ask me, have asked me to do. And I'd be like, hey, I want to make this. And they'd be like, that sounds stupid, make soup. And I'd be like, well, I want to make that. And they'd be like, make it for me. Are you ready to make it for me? Like, no, okay, make soup. Like, I made it and you can try it. And they're like, no, that's disgusting, make soup. So like one day I made a muscle escabeche, like a bunch of pickled vegetables and a really like nice, bright, like oily vinaigrette. And like people loved it. People were coming down to my station all night, like, man, people were loving that. That's the best. Like, you think it's great. Like, this guy just asked for seconds. Nobody ever asked for seconds. I was super proud of it. And and it was the first time I'd served my food, like my food in a restaurant and had people like it. And probably the first time I'd actually ever served my food in a restaurant at all. The next day, Chef was like, what are you going to do for the amuse today? And I was like, well, Chef, I was thinking about that muscle escalator yesterday. And he was like, you're never doing that in my house again. So... That was the end of that. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is. If you were, was there a favorite episode moment scene? If you weren't, and I know you're a big Emerald fan, is there a favorite moment scene that stands out from your days of watching Emerald that you just kind of always gravitate towards and remember? You know, I think that people, I think a lot of people miss the point with uh, Bourdain. You know, he was always very candid about being like a pretty mediocre chef. The real charm and I think the the kind of gold in his presence in the industry was that he was a champion for the industry. He was the guy that started explaining why food should cost what food should cost. Like he was the person putting in the context for everyone. And I have I pretty ravenously soaked up like a lot of the media surrounding him and his books, even his like even his uh, his fiction books. I don't know if you've read them. They're awful. But they're there, and I've and I own them, and I read them occasionally. Really, really, really not not good stuff. Like Bourdain, yes, not like cooking Bourdain. Something that I enjoy every time it comes across my like media feeds or as a rerun is when he went back to layout to like eat and cook the line with those guys, and he just like couldn't do it. But they were like so generous and tolerated him being there anyway. And to see the progress of like, you know, this kid that worked for him and he was like running the restaurant then, you know, it was a real like, it was very heartwarming. You know, you know, you work in the industry and you see so much turnover and you see so many people like turned around and in and out of the uh, industry. And you see people like abused and, you know, you hear about, people that you respect and look to up to or used to work with, like getting sick and ODing and to see him go back, you know, years and years after having left this restaurant and to land, you know, in this place with all these people he, he knew and, and have it be such a fun experience for everyone. That was really great. Where can people find you? Social media, website, all that stuff. Plug away. Uh, so I'm Kitchen Matt on uh, Instagram. I am Kitchen Matt on Twitter. I'm Matt Hagen's on Facebook and I don't like, um, haven't been accepting a lot of friend requests, but most of my posts are public anyway. And additionallife.com is my blog. You should check out Preston's Burgers at the North Market. I'm there a lot. The website's Preston'sBurgers.com. New restaurant's going to be opening in the next couple months too. And uh, we're looking at spring, I think. They just broke ground on it. It's like a from the ground up build out in Groveport and construction lead times on everything are insane right now. So we're probably looking at spring, summer. Yeah. There's a restaurant downtown that's supposed to open and we walked by it, just the space and like peered in the windows and was like, they haven't even poured the concrete in there yet. Like lead times on everything's super expensive and taking a really, really long time to get to, to get here. 
Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you coming on. Open invitation. Uh, you ever want to come back on, talk food, have something to plug. Doesn't always have to be an hour, hour and a half too as well. Just anybody that comes on the, the podcast, we want to leave the door open for their return. I thought it was because I did a really good job and it was special, but I got it, man. I understand. Just everybody. Well, we want to support everybody that supports us, you know? So, but yeah, I appreciate doing it. You know, Preston's, it's a good burger. It's a really good burger. There's so many different places. You know, I even thought, I know Columbus Alive did it a few years ago. And I think actually you guys were named like the best burger in Columbus, but there's just so many burger places. It's like, well, which one would be the best? Farthest I've gotten is like, you have to have two categories for like corporate fast food burgers than like local burgers, (laughs) but maybe one day we'll do it. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe in that. I don't, we talk about it. It should be good. It should be good or not good. Not like good for this or good for that. Good. Good or not good. Yeah, I can't wait to, you know, try the new stuff once it opens as you guys kind of do more pop-ups and stuff out of the North Market space. But appreciate you coming on. Stay in touch. And uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing you soon over at Preston's and checking out the blog and everything. Thanks for having me. A big thanks again to Matt for taking some time out of one of his off days coming on the podcast. It was really awesome to be able to sit down and just kind of chat with him about his career and everything that he's gone through and where Preston's is at and future plans and all that stuff too as well. So love to have him back on the podcast to talk about not just the Chapman's dinner, but also once he gets closer to opening, you know, Honey's Fried Chicken, that spot in Groveport, you know, talking about the situation with that and just different things that he's encountered with opening a restaurant post-COVID. But make sure to follow him on Instagram at kitchen underscore Matt, also at Preston's Burgers and at service underscore relief underscore kitchen and at Honey's Fried Chicken. So that's all news updates and everything with what they got going on at Preston's and Honey's and and the Service Relief Foundation that they founded too. And uh, make sure to check out additiontolife.com. That's his food blog that he just uh, fired back up. So give that a look. Also check us out on Instagram at SpoonMob website, SpoonMob.com. So we got stuff up there too as well, different chef profiles podcast list. So if you're looking for a specific podcast that we've done or something like that, having trouble finding it in the feed for some reason, you can go to the website. It's all up there. Contact Porter on the front page, write in question, comments, feedback, all that stuff. You can email us directly too as well, spoonmob at yahoo.com. Appreciate everybody listening. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. We got a bunch more stuff on the way, all the way up into Thanksgiving. We'll have new chefs and guest episodes every week. So make sure you follow us on Instagram and and also follow the podcast on whatever platform that way you're not missing out on new episodes. Parts Now Known comes out on Wednesdays, just kind of wrapped up season six with the Charleston episode and moving on to season seven. So we got a handful of seasons left. We got uh, seven, eight, nine, 10, and then 11 is kind of a, a weird one because Bourdain passed away. So I think there's only like four or five episodes. And then there's like three kind of looking back at Bourdain's career. So I don't think we're going to do those. I think we're just going to do the episodes and then probably have just the overall wrap up at the end whenever we get there. So we're we're getting close, but uh, make sure to catch up on that if you're following along and going week by week with us, rewatching the episode, checking out the podcast and stuff. Appreciate everybody listening, helping spread the word, continue to do so, and we will talk to you guys next week.